This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. Senator Lisa Murkowski said, I'm a firm believer that if you put together a good product, that is just good policy. That is embraced by both sides so that it is seen as politically advantageous to the Republicans or Democrats. That even in this very polarized partisan world that you can advance legislation. I have to believe that or I wouldn't be able to get up every morning. My co-host, Jerry Brisson, often says that hurried policy is bad policy, and he is absolutely correct and truthful. But bad policy doesn't just come from a hurried process. Bad policy often starts as a good idea gone awry. Policy based on data, experiential knowledge, and history are the birth process of the type of legislation that Senator Murkowski is referring to. Data defines reality now. While experiential knowledge offers insight and wisdom regarding the application for the future, and history gives us perspective. Of these three, perhaps historical perspective is most critical. It was the Spanish-born American philosopher Santanana who said, those who fail to understand history are condemned to repeat it. There are several policy measures before the federal government and both the Congress and the administration that are perilous in their consequences to our efforts to create food security. Whether it is the move to alter the consumer price index, the broad-based categorical eligibility policy, or even the minimum wage debate, all need thoughtful, data-driven, insightful testimony about their impact and review of our historical moves of similar decisions before we move to enact change to any of these and more. Whether we are discussing work requirements, minimum wage, or other policy, this is what I know. One-size-fits-all legislation doesn't help. It only hurts. We need to think better, work harder, and dig deeper to discover and discern the best policy to move people towards the goal of self-sufficiency. Jerry joins me in the studio for an entire show of wonky policy discussion that affects us all in our mission to create a food-secure Michigan. Come back and be with us. We're back, everyone. Food First Michigan, Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight. Jerry, good morning. Good morning, doctor, and what a day to be here. Wonky political (laughs) topics. I love them. Yeah, we're going to have some fun with this one. So uh, about probably a month or so ago, we talked about um, the chained consumer price index versus the consumer price index and the effect that that would have on the population that we serve, which would essentially lower the um the the wage the amount of money people could make in a given year um and and it would just simply roll people off of the eligibility list 
And now, today in the monologue, and as we're going to discuss, broad-based categorical eligibility. And so I think it's another administrative move, and I don't mean administration, I mean administrative. It's not legislative, it's administrative that is going to really dig into some of the folks who are very needy in this right at the poverty line. So your initial thoughts here. Well, I think one of the reasons why people get on these tracks of saying, wait a minute, there's a loophole. Let's close the loophole. Let's let's make sure that people who are getting benefits really deserve them. Right. And there's a when you when you look at the legislation, you see how it's written. It's easy to get sidetracked by the logic of it rather than the reality of it. And I think that's the both with the chained consumer price index as well as the broad-based categorical eligibility, you have the same problem going on. People look at the legislation and say, oh my gosh, there's a loophole, and that means people who aren't deserving are getting something they shouldn't get. Whereas the reality is not that. So, so, but when your job is to look at legislation, it's easy to get sidetracked by that. So let's try to make some sense of what I just said. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, we're going to try to get from wonk to real let's if put, we can get there. Well, we want to put the cookies <laughs> on the lower shelf so I can understand it. So let's take a look at the broad-based eligibility issue. So, so we have been talking probably since the very beginning of the show that we need to work on the benefits cliff. And the benefits cliff is essentially this. And and it's actually gotten a little better, but we'll get to that in a second. At eleven dollars and fifty cents an hour in Michigan, you lose you start to lose housing or you lose all of your housing child care housing child care and food benefits. That's how it was when we first started. Yes. Now you just lose housing and child care, <laughs> but food takes a little bit longer. You That's can. progress, but it still doesn't change that people lose a lot of benefits once they hit that threshold. So in order to make up household income to cover those costs, they have to make $17.50 an hour. So between $11.50 and $17.50 an hour, people actually get less household income than they did while they were getting their benefits prior right. to eleven fifty an hour. So essentially, every time they get a raise, they lose money. Yes. Now that disincentivizes work. And and we've talked to lots of guests about this, and people generally agree and understand that that's in fact the case. Right. So now let's talk about what's happening with this broad-based categorical eligibility change. Well, before you do that, let me just say, Work supports like housing, like childcare, like food assistance are meant to support work. Right. So wouldn't right. it be great if they did that? Right. So the answer. So what are we? What are we essentially saying? What we want is to say if the goal is self-sufficiency, which we're going to talk about later in the show. If the goal is self-sufficiency, and a person is making eleven fifty or twelve dollars an hour or whatever it is, we want those work support programs to stretch all the way across the wage scale until they reach self-sufficiency, where they no longer need you. Right. Oh, are the government exactly right? So we w we don't want them to drop them off any cliff. We want them to stretch all the way across the wage scale until now. How long? Well, we know how long because we've done the self sufficiency standard. It's not infinity and beyond. 
Right. Here it is. For every household type that you can possibly imagine across all 83 counties of Michigan. So I just wanted to say that's essentially what we want to talk, what we what we want out of this discussion is for work supports to support work. Right. And in your monologue, you made some really good points about, hey, let's be thoughtful. Let's use data. Let's really understand the impact before we start looking at, oh, look, there's a loophole in the legislation. Let's close it. Mm -hmm. Let's rather say, okay, how are these benefits helping people stay at work? How is it helping families uh, with small children or school-age children make sure they're reaching their educational goals? Let's really make sure that we're supporting households to be as self-sufficient as we can. So all that to say, again, the practice of making these policy changes fundamentally to save money with the underpinnings of we're saving money because we're closing a loophole is just not right. It The data does not support that idea. So what does the data actually support? And I think that's where we have some real concrete numbers we're going to talk about. On the other side of the break. And here we go. So give us a minute. We're going to pay a few bills. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight, we're back here on WJR in just a couple of minutes. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. And we are discussing broad-based categorical eligibility policy that is housed within the USDA. And this looks like it could be an administrative change in policy and, uh, and potentially have some pretty difficult effects on our network so time to get real time to get time real. to get real that means you got numbers that's we got some yeah. numbers right so so a single parent with one preschool age child and one school age child according to the self-sufficiency standard which we published just a little while ago needs to make $49,517 a year to meet all their needs without government help or without any food assistance or any other help. How much is that? $49,517. That's $23.45 an hour. Okay. That's what they Based need. Based on a 40-hour work week. That's exactly right. So that is what the self-sufficiency standard says a family of that size needs to make. Right. Poverty for a family of that size, the official U.S. government poverty measure, says they are in poverty if they are at or below $21,330 a year. So just, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, here's, here's how this, t- let me just pull the tapestry thread here. The consumer price index and the chain consumer price index would lower that figure more. That's right. By a couple percentage points. So that's why that conversation a couple of months ago that we're still talking about is so important. Right. So so already, if, if you're at poverty, you are over $20,000 a year less than self-sufficiency standard if you make poverty level wages, right? Right. So so there's a gap. You're 20 grand in the hole. That's right. right. A little bit more than that. It's about 28 grand, but who's counting? Well, if you're 20 down. <laughs> <laughs> so so all right. So that is a that's a significant difference 
between what you need and what you're actually getting and the benefits that you get help to make up that difference. And that's why we have housing benefits and childcare benefits and food benefits to try to close the gap between poverty and what a self-sufficiency standard might be. That, and that's how it should work in a, in, a, in a perfect safety net. That's exactly what it should do. So those components of the safety net, housing, child support, and food benefits, are the work supports that we're talking about that should stretch across the wage scale. So currently, 40 states say you can make 200% of poverty and still get some food benefits. Right. Right. But the SNAP eligibility is 130% of poverty. Right. So what's 200% of poverty? For that family, it's $42,660. Right. And we're and the the current way things are done would say even if that family's making that much money, they would still get some food benefit, and that makes sense because the self sufficiency for that family is still seven thousand dollars more, right? Mm-hmm. They're still going in the hole every month at forty two thousand six sixty. Right. All right. So that's why states are using this broad-based categorical eligibility because they can see that families still aren't making it at 200% of poverty. And it's true. That's not even a debatable fact. That is that is true. That's what's happening. So, if they roll this back to 130% of poverty, we're we're back to uh $27,729 as the standard at which you lose all your food eligibility for that family. And wait have, a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. 27000 against a $49,000 need. It's not going to help anybody be independent and self-sufficient and manage on their own. You're driving people down for the sake of closing a loophole? That's not a good reason to do anything. Well, moving people off of government roles and onto ours is not solving poverty. Well, it's just pushing the 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 bill, if you will, somewhere else. Well, it's pushing it off onto charity, right? Which is us, right? And, and there's, I mean, we do some amazing work in this state and across this nation, but there is no way, there is no way. I mean, just think about it. For every meal that SNAP benefits provides, which is twelve, to our one. For every meal we provide, SNAP will do 12. There's no way we can scale charity to meet this kind of need that's going to get dumped on us if these policy changes go into effect and have the effect that we believe they're going to. And so, you know, I I want to address one more thing, too. I think it's important to address. It's a little bit complicated, and that is how austere a life can a person live? And we hear from people all the time, well, you know, if people just ate oatmeal, they could eat for, you know, 30 cents a meal. And I think people actually do live in those austere conditions for some amount of time. Most people who need help ask for help way too late, and they've been eating oatmeal, right? But if you're a single parent with two kids, how long can you really do that before you're just going crazy? I mean, I think that we can call people to a certain level of austerity, but the reality is they're already there. 
most of the people who get help have waited too long. It's not that people are going, oh, I might need help, so I better start figuring this out. They get into a situation, whether it's an employment problem or a health concern or something else, and they start trying to manage it. And they start using the things at their disposal to try to manage that themselves. And we are a proud country, and that is in every segment of our population. We are all proud of who we are and what we can do for ourselves. It's one of our great charms, I will say, and I think it's something that we should be proud of. But at the same time, it creates a dynamic where people don't want to ask for help when they need it. So you already have these families eating oatmeal, and that's all they have for months. Mm -hmm. All right. So is that how we want our, our society to just persist forever? You're not going to reach the goals you want to reach in education. You're not going to reach them in job training and stability. You're not going to see people able to stay in their homes and pay their utilities. You're going to not see the kinds of progress that we could have if we maintain a purely austere point of view about this. We have to support people to a self-sufficiency standard. Well, I think I think so, and I think it's very well stated. We've talked about on this show since we started that some of these questions are not about the people that we're serving or the people who need help because they got more month than they do money. It's really about what kind of society do we, you and I really want to live in. I mean, I mean, really, I mean, you could live in a place where, and I've seen them, I've been there, I've, 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 I've visited and lived in those countries where there are 16 people in a family in a one room. Is that what we want? In America? Is that who we're called to be? Is that the shining light on the hill? I think not. So some of these things, Jerry, speak more about us as a society than it does about the people who need help. And that's why we're talking about it, right? When we talk about continuing to move toward effective policy and changing the conversation, we're not changing the conversation for no reason. We're looking hard at 49,000 is what you need. 42,000 is the threshold with the with the broad-based category categorical eligibility. That's the threshold that that 40 states are at now. This would drive that back down to $27,729 taking parents and children much closer to poverty and all the suffering that comes from that decision. Now, it's 3 million people Three million people who we're talking about being affected by this. And that's just not good policy. It's not going to get us where we want to be as a country or as a community. Well, it's three million people. And somebody might say, well, that's not very many. Well, it is if you're one of them. (laughs) Well, for sure it is if you're one of them. But it's also when you start looking at who those three million people are and you start putting names and faces of people who are working a job or two, they might not still have health care benefits. They still got to get their kids to the dentist and to the doctor. They still got to get those things done. They still got to fix a flat tire. I mean, these are all the things they cannot do. When you push people that far down to poverty. Well, we've got more to talk about with broad-based categorical eligibility and some of the other policies that are facing us and our attempt and mission, I should say, to create a food-secure state. Come back and join Jerry Brisson, me, Dr. Phil Knight, here on WJR and Food First Michigan.
Food First Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening. And Jerry, a couple more things on the broad-based categorical eligibility before we move on to a couple of other hot-button wonky topics. <laughs> um, hot-button to us, at least. At least, at the, at the very least. Um, so this change in the broad-based categorical eligibility policy that's housed within USDA was part of the Farm Bill negotiations. Over the last two farm bills, there were legislators who wanted this type of um, policy change included. It has been excluded every time in a bipartisan manner that said this would do too much damage to people and would overburden our charitable network. And it's been excluded on both occasions So this, again, is an administrative change, not a legislative-led change. Right. And just a reminder, what is the Farm Bill? Because I'm sure that there's a few people going, wait a minute, what does this have to do with farms? Yeah, that's that's cool. (laughs) So the Farm Bill, there's two really significant pieces of legislation that impact the food part of the safety net. The farm bill is the biggest. That's where all of the, what used to be called food stamps, now called SNAP, that's where all those dollars are authorized, as well as several other pretty significant federal programs that affect food for people who are uh, in need. So so why the farm bill is important is because th- that's where that legislation actually happens to appropriate funds for this safety net issue. So so that's why it's it's called the farm bill. It's always been called the farm bill. It links the people growing the food with people who need help. There's a lot of reasons why historically it came about that way, but fundamentally that's the farm bill. So when they talked about it, they actually did the right thing. Everybody got together, they looked at the data and they said, "You know what? This doesn't make sense. Based on we know, based on what we know about mm-hmm. how people are living today, it doesn't make sense to change the broad-based categorical um, eligibility. eligibility. It doesn't make so so that was good. That was thoughtful policy. So now they want to make an administrative change. Well, okay, let's go back and remember why we didn't put it in the legislation when we had a chance to do it. And that is historical perspective. And it's bipartisan. And well, those who don't understand history are condemned to repeat it. (laughs) And another thing I like to say, and you know I like to say it, is the less you know about a problem, the easier it is to solve. (laughs) That's true. I mean, let's go back and relearn what we know about this problem and not try to solve it in an ineffective way. Exactly. So the other thing that I think is really important to to call out, so we talked about 3 million people being affected by this. There are 500,000 kids who are going to be affected by this. Mm. Now, 500,000 kids nationwide, you know, it's, oh, a few here, a few there. But wait a minute, wait a minute. 500,000 kids who aren't going to be nourished the way they need to be to thrive. And that's that's just not right. I mean, we already know, and, and again, doctor, you like to say you have to be well-fed to be well-read. This is research that we have known about since the 1940s. Studies have proven over and over and over again. They've proven it so much we don't need to even study it anymore. 
Kids who aren't well-nourished don't do as well in school. And we know one of the most important indicators of high school graduation is being at third grade reading level by third grade. So when you start peeling these kids off of nutrition in school because you want to close a loophole, rather than really understanding the circumstances these kids are in and what they need to thrive, you're just making a mistake. And again, I don't, I don't really want to talk about people's motivation. I believe yeah. everyone is well motivated. Now, maybe that's naive, but I'm going to live in my little world of naivete and say people want to do the right things and they want to spend government dollars wisely and they're trying to figure out how to do that. And I'm going to believe that. So let's say this is really what's going to happen. Let's point that out. And I think most of the people who would who would say, oh, my gosh, you're right. This isn't the right change to make. I, I just I just think people need to know and be reminded of what we're really talking about here. So so in addition, as we're you know down wonk path here, the child nutrition reauthorization has been up for debate um, and and it's time to, to really discuss, are we doing the right things in terms of nutrition for, for kids in school, which is what that legislation really covers. And I know, Doctor, that you just have been watching this and, and have a few things that you can bring up about what's going on today with that. Well, just to tie the, you know, pull the tapestry string again here, what we're talking about in the chained consumer price index and what we're talking about in broad-based categorical eligibility not only does it affect the traditional food programs like food stamps or SNAP, but now they are affecting the Child Reauthorization Act, and uh, which is the second big part of the legislation. There's the Farm Bill that you explained so eloquently, but now there's CNR, the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act. And so I think that, that we're running up against... Uh, some difficulty in having that reauthorized. The Trump administration's recent move, uh, according to Senator Pat Roberts, who's the chair of the Agricultural Committee, um, and which our own Debbie Stabenow is the ranking member, uh, Senator Stabenow, the Trump administration's recent move to limit eligibility for federal food assistance has complicated the Senate's effort to negotiate a reauthorization of government child nutrition programs. And I continue his quote, there are some things that are happening from an executive standpoint that affect directly child nutrition that are problematic. This again is Senate Agricultural Chairman Pat Roberts, a senator from Kansas, who is the uh, the chair for the Agricultural Committee, where these bills, both the Farm Bill and CNR, Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act, are housed. And so now they're going to continue. They're not going to get, they're not going to die on the vine. They're not going to get cut off. But, you know, just talk about inflation for a moment. <laughs> right. You know, that's right. going to have a negative effect on this. Uh, and so, but we're going to continue at the, the current levels uh, that we've been operating under now for the last several years. But, uh, you know, these changes have not ripple effects, but they have really tsunami effects across uh, policy as well as people. And it's not just about money. 
So when we talk about child nutrition programs, we're certainly talking about how much money there is to fund those programs. But we're also talking about as we've learned what works and what doesn't work, we need to bring that information to our legislators and say maybe we need to do this a little bit differently. So we've talked several times and probably will several more times about some of the disadvantages of the way we do summer feeding and what the cost benefit of that program is and how if we trusted parents more to make meals for their children at home, you could distribute many more meals for much less money than the way we do it now. And you'd reach more kids. Only 17% of the kids who get meals in school get those same meals over the summer because it's just too hard to get to the places where the, the food is being served. So so let's look at that. Let's look at how we could do a better job and spend that money better and decrease waste and increase participation. The Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act is the opportunity to discuss policy changes that would work better for kids and families. Now, right. I gave one concrete example. There are many others. Sure. And, and so as when we decide, you know what, we can't talk about this right now, because it's too complicated in light of this other issue, we're missing the opportunity to make better policy and have better outcomes. Because in the end, it's not about money, it's about outcomes. What do we want for our children in our communities? And it is solely about outcomes. Um, the money is, is, I'm not saying it's unimportant, it is important, but not when you measure it against the opportunities. Jerry, we talk a lot in this state about uh, workforce and how we're going to have a workforce in the state. And we talk to, about education and lots of pressure put on the educational system to make sure that we have the workforce. Well, I'm just telling you, it's food first, man. Well, if you don't address it, we know, and research has proven this again since the 1940s, it doesn't work if you don't address the nutrition needs of kids. So that's why the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act is so important. It's the opportunity to say, here's what we've learned, and we have learned a lot. And let's just say this this bill has been um, forwarded at the same level for years now. It's a long time since they've actually said, okay, it's time to really discuss this. And we've learned a lot in those years about what could make things better for our communities. And we could see some of the results we're not seeing that that we would really like to see. Well, we could. We could. So I'm, you know, supposed to be the the lion tamer here and and know where we're at. I don't even know how many segments we have left in the show, but I know we have one more. So we're going to come back in just a minute. He's Jerry Prasad. I'm Dr. Phil Knight, and you're listening to Food First Michigan. Thanks for listening, everyone. I was right. We had one more segment. So Jerry and I are back here to wrap up this show. It's our wonky show. And uh, Jerry, we covered a couple of pretty big, big topics. Uh, One stretching all the way back probably four to six weeks ago with the Consumer Price Index, now the broad-based categorical eligibility, the CNR, the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act that's not being acted upon. Um, So these are all really important 
things for us. What do we need and want our listeners to do about any and all of these? Yeah. So one of the things I want our listeners to do is recognize that in the state of Michigan, we're a very bipartisan pro-safety net state in terms of how we do business. We look at data in Michigan. We use that data to inform our decisions. We have people from both sides of the aisle who are with us in making food first, folks. And and so one of the things I want our listeners to do is to congratulate our Michigan legislators for being who they are on this issue. I think we have one of the finest groups of any uh, groups in the country around these issues, and I think that's worth just putting out there front and center. The second thing I think we have to do is to the degree that that you can communicate with your uh, federal legislators, you do so. And you tell them we don't want bad decisions made because of technical reasons. We, we want to go back and really understand this is what it takes. And if you're not sure how to do that, have them call the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Right. And the Food Bank Council of Michigan, who is in touch with them, it, it just helps to reiterate. We, are, we have an organization in this state that knows what they're talking about and that can speak to any federal legislator about this issue with great information and great eloquence. And so there's, a, there's places to find, if you're not sure who your uh, federal legislators are, then you just come to our website, um, fbcmich.org, fbcmich.org, and um, you can reach out to us through contact and, and, and call when we can help you uh, discern exactly who your federal legislator are, even your state legislator for that matter. Um, in addition, you can, you know, um, um, really find one of the things I wanted us to make sure and cover is we've referred to the self-sufficiency standard a lot during this show. So since we're on our website, just put a slash there, fbcmich.org slash, and spell out one word, self-sufficiency standard. Just connect all three of those words together, and that will take you to the standard. And whatever county you live in, whatever household makeup you may have, you'll be able to discover exactly what it takes for you to be self-sufficient or someone in your county to be self-sufficient. And uh, we'll know where the end is, where we're all trying to help people get to. And we know we have a pretty broad base of listeners. You know, some of you are, are business owners and some of you are legislators and some of you are families that are trying to make ends meet and figuring out if you're struggling to make ends meet, I also want to say uh, 211 is what you want to call. If you're mm-hmm. struggling to make ends meet, you can call 211 from anywhere and find resources that can help you. We made the point that people wait too long, and uh, we don't want you to wait too long to get help. Call 211. And Jerry, there you often talk about what is the pantry? Pantrynet.org. That's right. Pantrynet.org. That's a website that you can put in your zip code and it will tell you within how many miles is a pantry that could serve you. It'll oh. give you the hours of operation and the days of the week that that pantry runs. And so uh, you can find out directly where you might get help uh, that way as well. Cool. So some pretty big topics and we... We said that when we started this show, the kind of the rebranding, that it would be a little more policy-centered, and it would also be more of a movement rather than just a conversation. Exactly right. Calls to action. There are things we can do, and if we're going to have a safety net that works, these are the things we have to do. And one of the most important things is to communicate, and I know it's probably not something all of us do, or many of us even do, and that's why it makes such a big difference when we do reach out and say, you know, we have some information for you, Congressman. 
congressman or senator or, you know, and and this is the information. And if you want to know more, talk to the Food Bank Council of Michigan. It's a simple thing, but it makes a big difference. It does. It does. And I will tell you this, that legislators pay a lot of attention to the phone calls, the emails, the letters that they receive in their office. And, you know, by the way, they really appreciate when you come and visit them. Your, their constituent comes to their office and visits. And that's a, that's a tremendous opportunity to influence policy. And, you know, we've, we've said on this show for years that, you know, we're all leaders, so therefore we're all influencers. And it doesn't matter our station in life or the lack of station in life. We all can have an influence, and we, can all ha- and we all have that responsibility. I'll give you the last word before we food for thought here. Well, I promised my brother whose birthday, his birthday just passed, I'd wish him a happy birthday on the radio. So, Joe, happy birthday. Well, happy birthday to Joe, and now it's time for a little food for thought. Booker T. Washington said, I've learned that success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life, but by the obstacles which he has overcome while trying to succeed. Policy, whether it's legislative or administrative, should come alongside of people to help them, and particularly those who are struggling with a bit more month than money, so that they can reach self-sufficiency. It should help people that are doing right things right, who are sometimes just simply demoralized because every day they get up to go to work, they realize it won't be enough. We shouldn't make it more difficult for people to help themselves, to pull themselves up out of poverty. We should make it easier. And these types of policies that Jerry and I have discussed today would do exactly that and have far-reaching effects. If you missed any of our shows, you can find them at foodfirstmi, that's foodfirstmichigan.org, and subscribe to our podcast there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and until next week, it really is Food First, folks. Food First. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.